Again, feels like there's a lot of momentum going with the podcast. I'm enjoying doing it regularly, um, pumping out a lot of episodes, two to three a week, which I've been told is quite a bit. You know, it just feels natural to me to speak to people and to have these growing relationships. You know, I've been networking for better part of 12 years, and it just felt natural to move into the podcast space and open up the conversations that I've been having with so many amazing people to the world. I felt it was a good use of my time. You know, time is something that I've had quite a bit of in the past year and a half after leaving uh, my long-term job that I had for almost 12 years, which was wonderful for me. Uh, The company I worked for was awesome, and it gave me a great base for my current businesses that I'm doing, and I'm really loving it. Uh, but I'm getting more time to explore my passions and travel more, and I'm just thrilled with how the podcast is going. It's a nice, slow growth, which is important. Nothing good comes quickly. And today's guest is someone I've never met before. Um, we're connected on LinkedIn, and I love talking to people for the first time on this show and watching our or listening to our chemistry develop during the podcast. You know, I think that sometimes we get too wrapped up in planning the shows and making sure that, you know, there's a lot to talk about. People are just interesting and I feel like there's always something to talk about and I love the the original nature of meeting somebody, other people hearing it and watching that grow from there. Uh, Dr. Dora Wolf is our guest today and we had a great conversation. I think you guys will really find it interesting. She's a licensed uh, clinical psychologist and there's just so much there that we got to talk about in terms of therapy and, and the importance of it, especially in today's culture. So without further ado, I am excited for you guys to listen to Dr. Dora Wolf. Hey, Dr. Wolf. Hey, Dr. Parker. How are you? I'm good. And yourself? Good. Thanks. Awesome. You sound awesome. Love the energy when you got on. Oh, thank you. Well, Iowa, I'm really happy that you uh, decided to come on to my show. And uh, it looks like that, you know, you are on other shows as well, making a habit of it. And I'm sure you're an awesome guest for a lot of people. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm doing my best. <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by your background and what you're doing. And um, we connected through LinkedIn, you know, I was looking up through your profile and things and then and you sent me your bio. So there's a lot of things I'd love to talk to you about just to learn more about what you're doing. Sure. So I see you're a licensed clinical psychologist and it seems like trauma is a pretty big part of what you are working with. That is correct. So tell me a little bit about you're working with a variety of populations related to that. Um, I do actually all facets of trauma. So um, anything from all different types of abuse uh, to people who have been uh, in natural disaster to emergency workers, um, uh, the military, police officers. Mm -hmm. So any facet of trauma uh, I deal with. Now, is there a population of, out of all of those folks, is there any population that you're working with more than others? 
Um, I would say I probably work the most with um, abuse survivors. Hmm. Like in relationships re- related to or? Um, a lot of childhood abuse issues. Ah, I yeah. see. I see. So you're, is, so that is fairly common from what you're seeing? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, mm. Statistically, we know, uh, you know, one in four children is going to be subject to some form of abuse. In terms of like physical, verbal abuse, all of the above? Right, all across the board. So what do you find is the the largest issue related to that when you're working with people in that population? Well, I think that kind of comes down to the other area uh, that I specialize in, and that's attachment. Um, The idea of that secure early bond between parent Mm -hmm. and child. Uh, And we know that so many uh, children lack that. Uh, We're looking at almost uh, about 50% of our population doesn't have that secure attachment to their parent. Man, yeah. Yeah. staggering information there. Jeez. Yes. So um, that obviously creates a myriad of problems that last indefinitely uh, if there's no treatment that's being provided. So that goes very uh, that goes hand in hand with abuse. So what's the so diving deeper into that? What's the origin of the the What's the origin of that, that, that you're seeing? So the, ch- the child's experiencing abuse in a ver- variety of forms. What's beyond that? What is the origin with the parents? What's the issue there, you think, and you're seeing? Well, it certainly is something that's transgenerational. We see, mm-hmm. you know, these parents coming from parents who were abusive towards them and insecurely attached. And uh, unless somebody breaks that cycle, we're just continuously seeing that handed down to the next generation. Do you find that people um, people change pretty regularly without an intervention or that just people really need an intervention to change? I do think that, especially when we're talking about these uh, factors of trauma and attachment, there needs to be intervention because mm-hmm. we need to heal these, uh, these two areas through a healthy relationship. And so many people don't have healthy relationships in their immediate support system. And, and so it's typically then through the intervention of a professional where they can establish safety uh, in a relationship and work through these issues of both trauma and attachment. Now, you're seeing that in, in uh, significant other relationships as well as, you know, you get people who are coming from difficult backgrounds, getting with another person who's coming from a very traumatic background and then we're seeing all this, you know, divorce and things like that related to it. Absolutely. You know, like attracts like. Um, yes. And so we see a lot of that going on. And, and I do think even statistically, if you look at the divorce rate, we're looking at about 60 percent um, of marriages failing. And that happens to coincide with that statistic about attachment as well. Uh, so we see a lot of this um, interplay between trauma and attachment and right. divorce. Now, I was, I was reading that there, um, now, again, I, I'm not sure if this is correct, but maybe it's population specific that millennials are waiting or dropping the divorce statistic, or maybe is that because they're just not getting married, things of that nature? Have you seen that? I have, actually. Um, and I do think it, it looks like they are, um, less of them are getting married, 
mm-hmm. they are waiting longer to marry. And, and so I think that those two things are definitely playing into uh, changing that divorce statistic a bit. Right. But generally, 60%, I mean, that's incredibly high. I remember when it was in the 50% range for that. Yeah, it's, um, it's not getting better, unfortunately. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it's, well, it makes you wonder. I, it makes you wonder in, in terms of people getting together, you know, what the concept of being with another person actually is. What does that mean to someone? Did, have they learned that through their previous relationships? They say, oh, I want to get married. Do they actually know what that means? Uh, or is it just a wedding? Or, you know what I mean? Like, it's right. how are you filtering that as you're growing up? You know, people have these dreams and ideas of, of getting married in a wedding, but they don't necessarily think about the actual mechanics of it. Oh, absolutely. I think that we live in a society that very much fuels um, this fantasy and this materialism and, you know, all of the things that go along with a wedding and not uh, in terms of what goes on in a marriage. And um, I also think that once people divorce, you need to work on yourself. You need to figure out uh, what part you played in it and how you can better yourself and be better in another relationship. And I think a lot of people don't take the time to do that. I think they jump into the next relationship uh, and then they are uh, sometimes surprised, sometimes not. Uh, When they show up in my office, they're typically surprised that the same issues are coming up (laughs) in the second marriage, Um, even though they swore it would be a lot different. But, you know, we repeat these things because it's what's familiar to us and it's what we know. Even repeating uh, less than ideal habits are, are, are familiar for people then, that they're just like, hey, even they may not want to repeat them, but it's so ingrained in them that they're doing that. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it takes work. It takes change. It takes self-awareness. And um, unfortunately, we're living in a day and age where a lot of that is sorely lacking. Yeah, I... It's fascinating the time we're living in because I think technology and things are changing at such a rapid pace and how we interact with each other is, is changing with that. And it's just, just, it's interesting. I wonder how that has affected your practice. Well, uh, when we take a look at things, you know, things like technology, there's always the good, the bad, and the ugly that Mm -hmm. comes along with anything new. Um, but what we see psychologically is that we are so connected, yet we're so disconnected uh, mm-hmm. to one another. And so we've seen anxiety go up and we've seen depression go up. Um, we've seen suicide go up. Um, so there is, there is something that's occurring now that, again, we're so connected through all these social media modalities um, but just as human beings, you know, there, there's something to sitting in front of a human being, to making eye contact, yeah. um, to knowing how to have that dialogue. And um, that's the thing we're seeing, especially in this generation of children. Uh, we are seeing that they are, they're at a loss. They really are communication deficient yeah. in, in terms of that face-to-face interaction and problem solving and connection and all those things that are so important. Totally agree. And, you know, it's interesting. I have a eight year old daughter and I try to spend as much time as possible, like just chatting with her and talking to her about the value of having communication with people, because I know it's just it's becoming a real issue. 
with uh, children, especially. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we have to, uh, we have to be good role models. My daughter's 12. Um, and we have to watch how we're interacting with social media um, right. and, you know, what we're doing and certainly making sure that we are spending enough time, quality time, that face-to-face interactive time with our kids. We have so many, you see the little ones now with the iPads, yeah. uh, you know, and constant. And again, we're, we're changing how we're wiring these little brains it's um, true. and it's not for the better. Most definitely. I, yeah, I think that's a pretty large consensus, at least from my observations and talking to so many people, is we're in a really, we're in a really weird time. You know, I grew up in a time when there was none of that stuff. Right. And, and then I grew up now I'm in a time where there is. So I had the benefit of knowing what it was like to not have any of these things and to know what it is like. But I wonder about people who have known nothing different. Yeah, absolutely. I think that when, you know, we grew up not having these things, our brains were wired differently. And I think that I certainly know that I'm on a computer or I'm some form of, of technology mm-hmm. and it's very taxing to my brain. It's like I, I need to disconnect after a while. Yes. And I think what happens is now in this generation where we're wiring these brains to need this high level of stimulation, when they disconnect from it, they're at a loss. Um, and we see these brains constantly seeking this form of stimulation. And um, again, it's at the detriment to just our interpersonal relationships. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting when we were talking about the marriage thing. How do you talk to somebody who's maybe been married like four or five times and they're coming to see you? And maybe you say, maybe you're the common denominator in these five marriages, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right. Um yeah, I mean, I think that that is, that's a fair question, you know, and you kind of go, why do you keep going back? Um, yeah. You know, what do you think is going to change? And again, we're typically seeing in that kind of dynamic, uh, people who have not had successful early relationships. So they mm-hmm. never learned how to successfully interact with other human beings. And so they're attracting people into their lives that are going to continue to play out that pattern. And um, those marriages then end. It's, it reminds me of like when I was growing up and then, you know, I got into my twenties and it was always somebody I knew who like, they never were single. They were always had a, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. And we're like, man, so-and-so can never be alone. Why is that? <laughs> you know, I remember thinking that back in the day. Right. And I think someone like yourself is like, yeah, I know why. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that, you know, when we there's a a great fear and with certain personality um, types, there's a fear of abandonment. And so there's that idea that it is much better to be in any relationship versus being alone. And so Mm. they are very non-discriminating in terms of who they end up partnering with. Uh, and then they, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Then that relationship ends, that partner leaves, they're terrified again, they're desperate. And so they end up um, kind of latching on to whoever's available, basically, and trying to get hmm. them to stay. It's a very unhealthy dynamic. Wow. Uh, you know, it's interesting, the, the abandonment aspect, I never thought about it that way. Because I think when you're when you're seeing this going on, you're going, well, it's just person's just like a serial relationship person, you know, like 
Jesus loved being in relationships or something. And they, you know, you may think, oh, they don't want to be alone, but never thought about the abandonment aspect of it. Yeah. I, and that typically is the reason that they don't want to be alone is again, that sense of abandonment. Um, and again, that is typically something that's laid down in their early childhood with one or both parents. Uh, and they continue to play that out through all of their relationships. Now, I, I'm interested, like, you know, it seems like so much goes back to those early relationships. And I know different um, psychologists have different uh, theories or different uh, historical figures that they follow, like, you know, the Freudians mm -hmm. uh, versus. So uh, who, who did you kind of pattern your work after or what um, psychologists did you say, hey, this person is someone that I really feel connected to, like I want to model after this, you know? Sure. That was um, actually John Bowlby. Uh, mm -hmm. He was the founder of attachment theory. Um, and I first learned about attachment theory uh, early in college, actually, and really grasped onto that concept because it made so much sense. I think just as you're talking about, there's these different theories in psychology. Um, the, one of the reasons why I specialize in attachment and trauma is because I think of them as the two universals, right? Every mm -hmm. single one of us um, went through attachment in our early childhood and every single one of us is going to go through some form of trauma. And so when I learned about attachment theory, it was the one facet in psychology that I could apply to every single patient that I saw, regardless of why they were coming in to see me. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. So take me through it a little bit. I mean, for people who are going to be listening, they may be like attachment theory and they, they have all wild ideas about what they think that's probably is. <laughs> What's kind of the, the, the gist of it? So the idea behind attachment theory is that, again, in the, when a baby is born and how that baby is taken care of in terms of how they're nurtured. So we hold babies and rock babies and love mm -hmm. babies and pay attention to babies' needs. And by being there enough of the time, responding to uh, a baby enough of the time in a healthy, adaptive way, that literally is responsible for a predominant amount of wiring in the baby's hmm. brain, um, particularly in that right frontal area of the brain. It's called the orbital uh -huh. prefrontal cortex. Um, and the very interesting thing about that part of the brain is that it really is the template for our affect regulation and our stress modulation um, for the rest of our lives. So we're setting that wiring and developing that wiring in an infant's brain um, in that first two years. And so if I respond to that baby enough and I calm that baby, I'm, I'm co-regulating that baby's affect, right? When I mm -hmm. pick that baby up and I calm them. And by doing so, I'm wiring that part of the brain where eventually that baby is able to regulate and self-soothe um, on their own. And I think we have all come across adults that we see <laughs> um, who don't know how to do that very well. <laughs> Um, and the first yes. thing I always think about is, you know, again, what, what did that first two years look like for that person, um, when that wiring was taking place to begin with? So when you say enough of the time that really struck me, is there, uh, for a lot, is there an operationalized kind of meaning for enough of the time? 
Yeah. So th- that's a question that I get a lot because people are worried about, you know, oh, if the baby cries for 30 seconds, am I, you know, mm-hmm. somehow damaging the baby? Um, it's, it's the idea that with attachment, we know about a third of the time we get it right as parents, right? A baby is crying and we sort of figure it out and we're able to calm them quite uh, quickly. And then another third of the time, we eventually figure it out. We might struggle with it a little bit. And then that last third of the time, we just, we don't get it right, right? The, maybe the baby's colicky or whatever it may be. Right. So it, enough of the time is, is basically about two thirds of the time. We know that, that parents who are capable of securely attaching with their infants get it right about two thirds of the time. So it, it gives some wiggle room for all of us who are imperfect <laughs> Um, and, you know, basically do, do the best we can. But what's interesting about that is again, if I was securely attached as an infant and I have that wiring in my brain, then I am undoubtedly going to, uh, get it right enough of the time with my own child. Um, but knowing that about 50% of the population doesn't get it enough of the time Hmm. in that first two years, we see a lot of people who struggle And I think the good news is that with all of the affective neuroscience we have at our disposal now, and knowing that the brain can actually change, there's this, that whole concept of neuroplasticity, Mm -hmm. that there really are very few brains that we cannot help uh, catch up and basically become securely attached. So it's called earn secure Mm. um, when we are, are helping somebody reach that you know, after they've already gone through their own insecure experience. So how does, say, for example, um, you know, I've, I've known several people. I mean, I was fortunate. I grew up in a very warm, loving, kind, considerate household. My parents are amazing people. Actually, as a personal trainer, I trained my parents. They hired me to train them. So I see them all <laughs> the time over the Internet and stuff. And oh, we have a great, great relationship. Um, but I'm also very aware that that is not common that I've seen mm-hmm. with a lot of people. Right. So how do you work with people who have issues with their parents and say abandonment issues with their parents, the parents weren't there, they weren't very connected to them. What, what are those first steps a person has to take in order to begin healing that? Well, I think that the first steps is, is again, acknowledging it. A lot of times mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of defense mechanisms around our early childhood Um, where we're really kind of not aware. Um, What we look for when we're dealing with anybody is something called a comprehensive, cohesive narrative. So none of us had perfect childhoods. Some of us Mm -hmm. had it better. Some of us had it worse. But what we look for is that people can go back and talk about their childhood and have some perspective on it. So Mm. they can talk about the good points of their childhood. They could talk about the bad points of their childhood and not either defend against it. You have some people who will come in and say, everything was perfect, everything was fine, my parents were great. You know, there's, there's no balance there. Um, right. And there's not a whole lot of narrative. And then you get some people who come in who are still so drowned in all of the affect. Yeah. So they might immediately fall apart. Um, and so we know that that's kind of the two um, opposite uh, polarities of the spectrum there. And what we look to do as we're working with these people is that we help them um, formulate that comprehensive co- 
cohesive. So we work with them to help put that childhood into perspective um, and to begin to heal some of those wounds. Um, and then depending on if there was trauma that was involved, there's lots of modalities that we have now that we can use. We use things like EMDR and we use neurofeedback and biofeedback um, and somatic reprocessing and all of these kind of modalities that help the body um, get over the trauma. Oh, that's awesome. I think, you know, for a lot of people, at least that I've known in my life, you're dealing with things like that. And it's uh, so difficult, you know, parental relationships uh, for people. It seems like so much of what people go through relate back to how they were attended to as children. Uh, do you find that that's a large, oh, that's like one of the biggest issues for people? Absolutely. Um, I, I would say that the, that probably is the number one issue that I work with. Um, it's, it's always relating back to that childhood. Um, and that, especially again, that first two years, because there's so much brain development that's occurring uh, then. And um, a lot of times people might be a bit reluctant, you know, they're 45 years old and now you right. want to kind of come in and talk about yeah. when you were two or whatever it may be. Um, but when you could help it make sense to them um, and they can start to put the pieces of the puzzle together, uh, a lot of people really then get into the work because they realize that, um, that they can get better, that they don't have to feel, uh, you know, so entrapped in all of that, that they've been carrying around for so long. Yeah. You know, you, you truly can have healthy, successful relationships. Um, you just have to put the work in. So what do you do? It's interesting. One of my clients is actually um, a licensed clinical psychologist as well. And so we get into all these really fascinating talks. You guys are awesome to talk to because there's just so many deep <laughs> things you can discuss. I, am, I love talking about deep things. Probably why I have a podcast. I just enjoy chatting about the deeper things in life. But what is your perspective on clients who or p patients you're working with who you tell them, you provide them the tools to change, and yet they continue to not change? Yes, um, that we actually see that a lot um, when it comes to working with things like attachment and trauma, because again, even though it may not, it might not feel good, however they're living their lives, it's familiar and change can be terrifying uh, for people. And we have a, a tendency to default to the familiar. And so one of the things that we look for is um, you can't do this work too slowly, but you can do it too quickly. Mm. And so uh, because change is so difficult for most of us, and in, in particular, people who have gone through trauma, uh, we really have to make sure that we're pacing things. And the other thing that comes into play is that if people are not having successful relationships because let's say deficits in their early attachment experience, Therapy is a relationship. And so many times people will come into the office and, and they don't know how to use the therapeutic relationship mm. because they don't know how to be successful in any <laughs> right. relationship. Makes sense. And, and so one of the first things that we need to do is we need to help them learn how to utilize the therapeutic relationship. Um, that really is the first and for and, and sometimes that can take, you know, a couple years. Because you may have a person, again, who's already in their 40s, and they've literally never had a successful relationship in their life. 
And now they're coming into therapy and this is just yet another relationship. Uh, And so we have to make sure that we're uh, getting that foundation down first, because once they can trust in that, then they are much more likely to take a leap of faith and start to create some change in their own life. But they need to be able to trust it first. Um, and many of these people come in and, and again, they have, they've had no reason to trust anything, mm-hmm. uh, including therapy. And so that really becomes the initial thing that we work on with them. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, especially because, you know, I really didn't think about it from the aspect of a person's coming to see you and you're, you're teaching them the basics of get, being in this, it's another relationship. And so, but they don't see it that way, probably, but t- in the beginning, they just think they're t- they're going to tell you about their life and stuff, you know. Exactly, you know, and that somehow you're magically going to fix it, um, or you're going to give them, you know, the the magic thing to make it all better, and um, it it will start to bring up a lot of their own issues. We always say that you can tell how people are in their relationships outside of therapy based off of how they are. Uh, with you in therapy interesting. because all of those same issues are going to start surfacing. <laughs> um, and so uh, a, a lot of work that we sometimes have to do uh, in that specific area, but it's very rewarding work. I would say both for the psychologist and for the patient. It's, um, it's one of the things I enjoy so much about being a psychologist is truly seeing that transformation in somebody's life. Do you ever see, people that just don't change, like you just feels like butting their head against the wall. I mean, you're talking to them, you're going, you're creating all these parameters and interventions or whatever, and it's just nothing's happening. Um, yes. I mean, occasionally that, that will happen. I've, I've been doing this for a long time now, so I kind of know uh, all the tricks of the trade yeah. um, and, you know, can kind of get in there and um, I have a tendency to do longer term therapy. So patients, you know, at the outset that we're kind of in this together um, for the long term yeah. based off the things that are, are have happened in their lives. Um, but people also need to be ready for therapy. And so um, I think sometimes what ends up happening is you will work with a patient and you'll start to see some of those issues coming up. And for whatever the reason may be, they're just not in the space at that moment in time to go any yeah. further in therapy. And so what we may end up doing is kind of talking about that and making sure that we've sort of closed anything that's opened up and, and make sure that they can you know, exit therapy successfully at that moment um, knowing that they can re-engage at a later time when they're ready. And you see that, uh, especially with cases like trauma, where people might work on something and then they kind of take a break um, or they're just not ready to go any further. And then they may re-engage at a later time. Right, right. Now, there's a lot to, th- there's a lot to think about here. A lot to, I think it's just great information. So... How has your work affected your personal life and your relationships? That's a great question. Um, I think that for the most part, it's been very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my whole dynamic around attachment, because I did have a lot of dysfunction in my own family. And so first and foremost, for me, I felt like it was my job 
to make sure that my children were successfully, securely attached. So I, you know, latched onto attachment and it made so much sense. And, and the most important job I do is being a mom. Um, and so uh, attachment is kind of just revolves around all of my relationships. Um, the trauma aspect of it is a little bit more difficult just in terms of you have to make sure you have a really good support system and that you have good outlets and that you practice really good self-care mm -hmm. because people come in with a lot and they're very dysregulated and you're taking that on day after day after day. Um, and so I think the, the, my indoctrination into all of this was doing my residency at a prison um, and so I had a lot of that at me every single day. Um, and I was very, very fortunate that I had a really wonderful support system um, that helped me kind of learn how to deal in this trauma realm and not take everything on and take it home with me. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm always fascinated by, you know, anyone, you know, whatever profession they're in, how do they translate that to their own life? And I think especially as psychologists, I would think you're taking in all this energy from all these people on a regular basis. I mean, I deal with that in training with people and business meetings, you're taking in all this emotion on a regular basis. Yeah. And how do you filter that? And, and, and I think people are curious about, they hear about licensed clinical psychologists are like, I wonder how they deal with their life. How do they, because <laughs> you know, you think you see these things like, Oh, the respiratory therapist who smokes and then they're working. Right, with people, right. You know, you're, you think about a doctor who's dealing with patients and they're very unhealthy, you know, they're giving this advice. And I think it's something that this, that people are very fascinated to look behind the curtain and say, well, how do you live? <laughs> you know, right, sure. you're telling me um... these things. How do you live actually? You know? And, and we do get that a, a fair amount because certainly we are not perfect. Um, and I always say that we um, we're just, Hopefully, we're just more aware um, of what our own issues are, and we take it upon ourselves to do something about it. Uh, so that's sort of how I've lived my life. And, and I train a lot of young professionals. Uh, my office mm -hmm. also is a, a training facility, and I always talk to them about this is a profession that you can burn out in very, very easily. Uh, and so self-care is predominant. And so I very much try to practice what I preach. And so um, I think for patients, for my other providers, um, and for myself, we have to live a healthy lifestyle. So we've got to eat well, we have to exercise, we have to practice good stress management, we have to have good support systems. Um, and I, I really do live by that. Uh, and try to help others to do that as well. So what is the, for new psychologists, what is kind of the, the hardest thing in that first year of, of doing the work? I think being overwhelmed um, and, and not feeling useful. Um, you know, people come in and they have, they, they are giving us a lot of stuff in terms of what's going wrong in their lives. Um, by the time somebody comes into therapy, they're usually hurting pretty bad. Um, and that's that impetus that finally gets them into the office. And so as a young professional, as you're now dealing with lots of different 
uh, ages and lots of different diagnoses, you know, people coming in and you have that tendency to want to fix it right away. Yeah. Um, and then you feel like you've forgotten everything that you've learned in school <laughs> um, and you can feel completely useless. And so what we really need to do is help the young professional to just, again, stay grounded in themselves, stay grounded, stay present, stay aware um, so that you can connect to that patient. Um, and then you're going to know what to do. Uh, so it, it really is just dealing with that early sense of feeling so overwhelmed. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I, I, I can imagine, you know, like anybody, maybe like the first patient that they see, the first client that they see. I always think about that first time you work with somebody. What was that like for you when you started? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was terrifying. It was exciting. It was, <laughs> um, you know, all of those things. Um, you, you spend so much time in school and so much time training and learning. And then finally, you know, you're sitting across from your very first patient um, and it's surreal. And, you know, you, there's all those thoughts. Do I know what I'm doing? Um, I can't believe this person's going to, I can't believe this person's going to pay me for this. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all of these um, insecurities that come to the forefront. And so, uh, you know, now 20 years later that I've been doing this, it's, um, it's some of the, the words of wisdom I can share with the early professionals coming on and, and talking to them about, again, that's a very normal experience. Um, you know, hopefully the patient doesn't see that um, or they wouldn't be sitting there very long. Um, but, you know, they've prepared for it. They've trained. They're well educated. They're they're in the role that they're meant to be in. And they just have to work through those early nerves. And, and we've all been there. Um, you know, I, I certainly can attest to that. So but it gets better. Yeah, most definitely. What do you think is the biggest or some of the biggest misperceptions that people have about therapy? Oh, um, I think that, um, well, I think the media sometimes has a lot to do with that because mm. um, therapists have a tendency not to be portrayed so well, right. in, you know, movies and television. And um, so sometimes I think people will come in and they are worried that they're going to be judged. Um, they're worried that... Uh, you're going to kind of sit across from them and, and, you know, tell them that they are crazy and you're going to, the guys with the straight jacket are going to walk <laughs> in and sort of take them away. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there, we do see sometimes, I think it's gotten better, especially again with things like the internet and social media, because people are talking a lot more about it. Um, get some people, you know, some reticent people who kind of come in and, they're very uncomfortable with the idea of it because there's still such a negative stigma around mental health issues. And um, it's our job to kind of get in there and normalize it for everybody um, and let them know that, you know, it is a, it's a process and um, it's a relationship. And so uh, when people come in, they have to feel comfortable with you and it's your job to explain to them uh, what to expect Right. And it's your job to listen to them in terms of what their expectations are, uh, because they really are the ones who are leading their lives. And so um, I need to be able to work with you and respect where you're coming from and, and what you need from me and how I can help you. Yeah, it seems like the if you think about like therapy, 
for a lot of people, especially they see it in a movie or on a TV show. And it just seems so weird. You know, it like paints some picture of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's probably not very indicative. I mean, I had a therapist in college and it was awesome. It was actually part of my uh, educational program. And I thought it was like, man, everybody needs to do this. This is like a great way to learn and grow mm-hmm. up and in college. And, and I felt it was nothing like what I saw on TV or in a movie. So I was like, it's definitely not like this. Right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and there's a saying, right? Half the world is in therapy and the other half should be. Um, and, and I do think that it is a great thing for everyone to be able to experience. Um, there is, it, it really does personify sort of the ideal relationship um, in, in terms of for growth, right? Because here I am and I am unconditionally listening to you and I have all of this education and all of this awareness and all of this um, capability to kind of help you focus on you and to work through things. Um, and again, especially in this day and age where we're struggling so much with relationships where people don't know how to do relationships successfully um, to be in the presence of something that can really help you work through that. uh, I think is uh, something that can be wonderful for anybody. I totally agree. Totally agree. I think that um, at least my experience when I, when I did it, I thought it was very transformational for me in my younger years, just being able to talk to somebody who just listened to what I had to say. And a lot of people, I think they feel like nobody's listening to them. They're just passing judgment on them or they're like, yeah. I'm too busy for this, you know. And I think that when kind of going back to what you were talking about before in terms of what people may expect in therapy or, again, not ever having a successful relationship, that's exactly what they expect is they're going to come in and you're going to be judgmental um, and tell them everything is wrong with them. And that brings up a lot of shame for people. And so they uh, may want to avoid therapy. And I think when they come in and recognize that it's just the opposite of that, um, that's where a lot of healing can take place. You know, I kind of cross section this with, um, you know, I had a guest on who's um, a financial advisor and it's kind of a wraparound, but, he practices what is essentially behavioral finance with people. And it's very different because it's really getting people to understand their behaviors related around finances and understanding the relationship you have with finances and, and how people, they go into and say, Hell, you're going to, you're going to judge me on how much money I have or don't have and my spending habits. And it was, it's very interesting, his approach related to, Like, you know, it's not what you think it is. It's what you've been told is not how it really is when you work with someone like that. You know, and I think a lot of life is these these facades, these these curtains that we put in front of things. And when you open the curtain, it's not always what you think it was or what you've been told it is your whole life about something. Absolutely. And that can be very jarring for people. And I completely And I think that um, the gentleman that you were talking about, that's the exact way I think that people need to be advised with money because there's so much uh, psychology that's wrapped up in all of that. Uh, You know, how people uh, spend money and use money and just materialism in general. 
and so I think that we as therapists spend a lot of time talking about those issues as well. We try to fill ourselves up with stuff, uh, the things that we feel are missing right. in our lives. And that just creates a very vicious cycle. Yeah, I think just we have this weird thing sometimes that we just we keep things from others or we don't talk to people about what we make or or these certain things are taboo and stuff. And I think for me is like part of one of my reasons for doing this podcast is like I want people to see behind the curtain and say, hey, listen, maybe this isn't as bad as you thought it was. You know, there may be somebody listening mm-hmm. going, oh, I don't believe in therapy or whatever. But sometimes they just need to hear from somebody who is a professional is doing it and says, no, no, no. Here's how it is. You know, you may have been, you know, people get their sources. Sources are very weird for people. You know, you, you believe something from somebody that told you something one time and then you carry that with you without questioning right. it and say, well, who was the source that this came from? It could be their mother or father going, oh, that's crap. You know, so yeah. how do they know yeah. if it's actually accurate or not? You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, you, it, it takes a lot. And I think that um, people need to be aware that we are definitely aware that it takes a lot to come into therapy, right. To, to place yourself and to feel that vulnerable. Um, and so we certainly respect that. And um, I can say almost uh, every patient that I've ever worked with has been very pleasantly surprised um, and has come, you know, a very long way in the work that they've done. And so I really do encourage people to explore that option. You know, there, there's no need to, to suffer. Right. Um, you know, there are people out there, there's resources out there, there truly is help, no matter what you've gone through, um, things can get better. And uh, I, I hope that people really can latch on to that and believe that. Um, because I've seen it happen countless times. And um, there, there's just no need for it. It's, you know, we, people don't think twice when they're physically injured, to go get treated for it. And yet we have so many people suffering emotionally and psychologically. Um, and that can get better too, but it doesn't get better if you don't engage with the right resources. What do you think is causing that? Like, I mean, I see that too, as people, something, you know, you injure yourself, you go to the doctor, this and that. What do you think the disconnect is versus mental health versus physical health? Well, I think, boy, that's, yes, that's it multifaceted, is. <laughs> I think, you know, it's, I mean, just societally, we, um, we are a so disconnected. Um, when you take a look at uh, mental health, it certainly is not valued uh, the way that physical health is. I think we've, we've come a long way and people are continuing to create change. But there's this idea that with our mental health, um, it should remain kind of behind mm. closed doors. And we have a lot of that that comes in culturally. And people think that, you know, we, we handle things on our own. You know, we don't trust outsiders. It's not things that you talk about outside the home, especially because so much of mental illness comes from this relational stuff that we've been talking yeah. about. Um, and so when we're talking about, uh, you know, not good enough parenting, when we're talking about any abuse issues, there's so much shame and there's so much secrecy around all of that stuff um, that the last thing people 
have a tendency to want to do is go share that with a complete stranger. Uh, you know, especially somebody who may tell them, you know, you, you're the problem or will implement, you know, more shame or whatever it may be that keeps them from engaging in therapy to begin with. And so there's just, there's just that stigma that still exists um, about somehow, uh, you know, mental health being equated with kind of this word crazy and, um, you know, that there's something just really wrong with you. And, um, and we just need to change that, right? We, we all have and will experience mental health issues in our lives. That's, that's a given, um, you know, because none of us live in a bubble. And so the idea is, again, knowing what, what do we do with that? And, you know, how do we get in there, especially early intervention and prevention uh, is so key with all of this. And um, that's where I try to put my focus now uh, is. Well, is you're, I areas. saw that you're, you work on pre-trauma. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, here's the idea that, again, uh, all of us will experience uh, some form of trauma uh, within our lives because people die and they get divorced and, you know, we get in car accidents and and all of that is considered to be trauma in its broadest definition. Um, And so when we talk about pre-trauma, again, we're talking about how do we build brains? How do we wire brains so that when they do come across any facet of trauma, they're resilient to the trauma, right? Not everybody who experiences trauma has to go into therapy or develops PTSD or any of these issues. Um, But what's really fascinating is that about it is two people can go through the exact same experience and one of them comes out relatively unscathed and the other one completely falls apart. And so it becomes that issue of, okay, why, you know, why is this person fine? And this person is um, the exact opposite of that. And what we have started to learn is it really comes down to, again, that brain wiring. Um, you know, how, how does that brain look uh, when it is exposed to that trauma? And so when we talk about pre-trauma, we talk about first and foremost, um, early intervention, right? So helping people understand early attachment, right? And, and wiring those brains. Um, so that they are healthy and they are resilient and they, they are able to regulate affect um, and they are able to uh, balance out their autonomic nervous systems, you know, on their own. And they're just strong and resilient human beings, um, which, again, is preventative not only for mental health, but for physical health as well. Um, and then we talk about when we're dealing with whoever it may be. Um, we can start to see kids and even sometimes adults who may come into the office or may get referred by their um, physician. And we see things that we call prodromal symptoms. So it's kind of like there's something there Hmm. right under the surface that hasn't necessarily popped up yet. So they're starting to get some symptoms. And we may know from their history that there's a lot of anxiety in the family. So the child or even the adult may not have a full-blown anxiety disorder, but they're starting to have some symptoms that are popping up. They're not sleeping well. They're not able to focus. Um, just something that's, that hopefully brings to their awareness, I should go see somebody about this, right? This is out of the ordinary for me. And then what we do is we work with those patients, again, around changing any wiring that may need to be changed in their brains, balancing out the autonomic nervous system, 
making them nice Mm -hmm. and resilient. um, Because what will end up happening if they don't is that those symptoms will continue to get worse and worse. And then if they're hit with trauma, now we're at it's now we're looking at somebody who has a very high risk of developing something like PTSD. Um, and so again, early intervention is key um, from birth, you know, into any time we start to see any symptoms pop up, um, we want to get in there and we want to get the work done uh, so that we don't have a bigger issue to deal with. It's almost like a buffering road. system you're developing initially, right? Absolutely. So, okay, you're, and it's, it's kind of like, it, it's fitness, but in a different way, in a sense. Okay, we're buffering, we're putting armor on our brain in some sense to, we're gonna, you're going to deal, there's going to be a battle, there's going to be a fight, but you, sh- you need to be able to survive and flourish beyond this fight due to these, this implementation of this buffering system almost uh, with it. Yep. Absolutely. And, and so we do take a look at, um, you know, I practice very holistically in terms of how we're looking at patients. So um, again, I want to know what you're eating and I want to know how you're sleeping and I want to know what your exercise routine looks like. And I want to know what your stress management uh, routine looks like, because without those basic fundamentals in place, everything else is just harder to accomplish. And with, with having those basic fundamentals in place or helping people to put those into place, um, people are often astonished at how much better their life is just in general. And so, you know, the idea that you have to spend years in therapy or the idea that you have to throw medication at everything is really old school kind right. of thinking. Um, you know, we really need to get in there and make sure that people are living very uh, balanced lives. Because um, I I always say to my uh, students that I train, um, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are as a therapist, if the patient that you're working with is going through a a drive through three times a day to eat, and they're sleeping Mm -hmm. two hours a night, and they're watching eight hours of television or, you know, electronics, um, you're never going to accomplish what you need to accomplish. So you've got to get in there. And first and foremost, set that template for them and help them create that change. Um, and again, that really can change people's lives. You know, I never heard it from that perspective. I mean, it makes complete sense. I mean, in my field, all about all those kind of pillars of that. But I don't know if I've ever heard from you know, a therapist's point of view, like attacking those areas in order to make to make your job, you know, better and easier so they can actually make some more of the kind of the social emotional changes with that. But it makes complete sense for that Um, because, you know, it's this person is made up of so many different things and different experiences that they're having that you have to, it's a multifaceted deal with human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we are, we are brains and bodies, right. right? So it, it all works together. And, and there used to be much more, even when I started, there was a, a much greater dichotomy between physical health and mental health. Um, and, you know, one kind of didn't cross over to the other. And now we really work a lot more cohesively with everything um, and recognize it's, it's about a complete human being. Yes. Um, you know, that we're dealing with and, and whether you're dealing from the medical side or from the psychological side, but we have to take everything into consideration um, because we are not living uh, very healthy lives right now. Right. 
Um, and so, you know, we have to make sure that we're taking a look at all of those factors um, because they all feed into each other. Most definitely. So how do you think the, your profession has changed over the 20 years uh, that you've been into it? And what are your kind of a two-part thing? So, and what are your feelings about um, kind of the virtual space with or things like talk space? Ah, uh, yes. Um, so things have changed exponentially uh, since I first started. And um, I think some for the better, I think that we have, uh, you know, better treatments and better modalities and, and just a lot more at our disposal that we can utilize to help patients, um, especially trauma patients that, that I, uh, you know, work with. It's talk therapy is just a piece of it. And then there's all these other kind of things that we add um, into it. I think the work, though, just from a kind of managed care perspective has gotten a lot more difficult, mm. um, it, you know, in terms of we, we do not live in a society right now that values patients getting better. Um, we are driven now by uh, what's the cheapest form of treatment. Everything is driven by money. And um, that really, really impacts the, the care that patients are able to get. And when we're talking about people who have very severe things happening in their lives and you are arguing with an insurance company yeah. that, you know, you need to see this patient for more than 10 sessions, um, you know, those sorts of things really just unfortunately negatively impact treatment. Um, but treatment in general, I think, has just gotten a lot better in terms of, you know, again, the, the, the amount of care that we can provide. And then going into um, the second part mm -hmm. of your question, which was this idea of this virtual stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm very old uh -huh. school. So um, like I, I literally just got on Facebook two weeks ago. <laughs> um, and the only reason I got on Facebook was because I've been asked to do a lot of these Facebook lives. And unbeknownst to me, I needed a Facebook page in order oh, to do okay. all this stuff. Um, so I finally joined that world, but I, I've been very sort of leery of, um, of all of that. And especially where psychology is concerned, because again, when you're sitting face to face with somebody and when you have eye contact with somebody, um, our brains link up. And so my brain, if it is stable and regulated, which I worked very hard right. to keep it so, um, will actually work to change how your brain is working and it will help stabilize your brain. And so there is something to be said and, and even everything else that we've been talking about in terms of just that one-to-one -one interaction, um, you know, face-to-face -face and um, picking up on body language and, you know, all of those things that can only occur um, with two human beings in the same spot. Um, I think that, I think that we risk losing that. Um, I think the flip side to it is I understand that we are living in a much different world now. And I mean, you and I wouldn't be able to right. do this, um, right. If we didn't yeah. have, uh, this kind of modality. So there is something to be said. And I know that many people don't have access to treatment and it's one of the ways that they do have access to treatment. And I get approached to do it all the time. I have not yet mm -hmm. taken that on. Um, I'm kind of sticking my sticking to my yeah. guns and and just doing the face-to-face -face stuff so you know I think it's not necessarily ideal 
Um, but I do think if it was between that and not having treatment, then certainly, um, you know, I think that, that it certainly can be helpful. And, and I'm sure that there will be uh, people probably looking at it right now to see, you know, if I'm looking at you on Zoom or, yeah. you know, whatever the modality may be, am I actually impacting your brain still? Right. You know, what's, what's right. going on there. So I wonder that, so I wonder I, that how that may be working that way, you know, like with a virtual space for therapy, you talk about sitting in front of somebody and how that, I mean, the mechanics of that I'm fascinated by, but would that be, would you get that similar feeling with that? I mean, I'm not sure, but what what are your thoughts behind it? Yeah, I, and I'm not sure either. Um, I, I hope that somebody sort of takes a look yeah. at that and, and can let us know. But I think that again, there's, there is something that we're desperately missing in this day and age. And that is just that one-to-one relating, you know, in the, in the same space, like actually looking at each other, being able to touch (laughs) each other, um, you know, like, like those, that dynamic. And so um, my fear is that we are just kind of, we just keep moving further and further away from that. And so I think there will always be a space for that type of therapy Um, and I hope because it's much more intimate and, um, you know, people are just so lacking in intimacy. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. You know, it's incredible. And, and I, and I don't know, I don't know. Can we have the same sense of sort of trust and what have you, if we're not just physically in the same space? Um, but like I said, I think only time will tell. I, I think so. You know, I have grappled tremendously with with the change in technology. I mean, I think a lot of people who know me and, you know, listen to my podcast, they hear me talking about this all the time. Like I am a big fan of technology and I'm a big uh, person against it at the same time. Yeah. And like, yeah, like this podcast, it's very easy to do this way. So there's, there's good. I'm connecting with people that I normally maybe wouldn't be having this with, but on the other hand, I don't like social media at all. And like you talk about Facebook, yeah. I got off of Facebook like five years ago because it was just so toxic. It was so all of these, the comments and no, nobody ever said anything to me, but it was just like going through it and it becomes this sinkhole, this, this time, mm-hmm. uh, just garbage dump of time that you spend on seeing negative comments or things that people may say that they normally would not say in front of another person for that. Absolutely. And I find that to be very yes. just jarring and very just so negative. And so like I got rid of all of my social media except for LinkedIn, which I use quite a bit because for me, it, it just it just fit more to what I was into talking to professionals. It was more about business and became a little more personal. But the, the, I haven't at least seen so much that has been so gossipy and, hey, this is what I ate today, you know, type of thing, you know. Right. And I just couldn't get on board with yes. that. And I... And I was, it's so funny. I was like, maybe I should have like a Twitter for my podcast and I have it and I hate it. I literally can't stand it. I'm about to get rid of it. (laughs) Just got, I'm like, you know what? I just, I'm not, this is, I'm not being true to myself. Like I need to move with the technology, but in a way that is authentic for me to move with it. And that's social authenticity is something I've been championing, championing really hard being online. Like, if you can't be yourself, you, if you're posting pictures and your life is super happy all the time, that is not true. It's not true. Why are you right? projecting that to people all the time? 
there's a psychology behind that too, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's feeding into um, people being so anxious and people feeling so depressed and people feeling so isolated because again, instead of sitting and having coffee somewhere with a friend, they're scrolling through all of this social media and that's how they're staying connected. Um, And and I really think you hit the nail on the head, this idea of this authenticity, because that's what I have struggled with as well and why I've not been on any of this social media Um, because it, I think it is quite difficult. And so um, I I hope that people really can find uh, an effective balance for themselves in terms of how they utilize all of it, because we see, so I certainly in my office see so much of the negative stuff um, that social media has kind of dumped on people. And um, I know there's a good side too. And, and that's what I'm really kind of struggling with myself to figure out how to utilize that again effectively because I'm not one to just naturally go in that direction. Well, I think what's interesting is that you're getting this weird, we're in this weird vortex where people are creating their worth through likes and clicks and comments. And if I'm, and yes. if, what if my authentic social self doesn't get me a lot of likes? or a lot of people looking at me. And I think that's what people, a lot of, they want attention from it. But what if your real self is not going viral? Your real self generally is not a viral-based thing. It's just a general, you're just you. A lot of these things that are viral, these extreme behaviors or this overcompensation for this hyper sense of yourself, well, I'm going to do something really controversial, or I'm going to have this behavior that's really crazy out there so that it'll be clickbait and it'll be interesting and people will like it. And, the and I I've read a thing about how like Instagram was thinking, I mean, I don't have it, but Instagram thinking like, what if they took away the like button, how that would drastically affect the business of people who are on there? Uh, yes. Just cause this, this little like thing is huge yeah. for people. Yes. And, and again, it, it can, ruin their whole day. Right. You know, and, and again, for somebody's self-worth to be based on that, but again, you have people who are so inundated with it and you have kids growing up now that don't know any different. And so that's what it becomes. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's silly. I think in one perspective, like for me who didn't grow up with it. And I think, I don't understand why everybody wants to know what everybody's eating for breakfast (laughs) and, you know, I, I don't, get I it don't understand, you know, yeah, why, again, all of this outrageous kind of behavior, um, but it is, it, it just goes to show that, again, we are building these brains that are looking for this hyperstimulation, um, and so we start to see these extreme behaviors, and that gets rewarded because, again, these brains are going, yes, I want more of that, I want more of that, I want more of that. Um, and to be, get a thousand likes by strangers, it, it, it comes down to, again, what does that say about us and about our self-worth, right? I, we would hope that our friends and our family and the people that actually know us, um, have really wonderful things to say about us, but we spend so much of our time (laughs) focused on what people that, you know, we have no idea who these people are and we want to know what they think about us and we want them to like us. Yeah. We want them to like us. It's. It's really strange. I was telling somebody else on one of my podcasts about this book, The Opposite of Hate. And it was about, it was about this Fox uh, 
journalist who was actually a Democrat, and she talked a lot about um, all the trolls, you know, the online behavior trolls who were saying all these nasty things about her. So she actually had enough pull where she was able to find out the contact information for a lot of the trolls that were contacting her. And so she detailed the conversations she had with the people who were spewing this really negative commentary about her. And what she found out was, I mean, it shocked me and it shocked her. She would get on the phone with somebody who said, oh, you're evil, you're terrible, I hate you, you know, all these terrible comments. And she would say, why would you say that about me? And they would say, I was bored. I didn't have anything else to do. And also, I didn't think you would care what I said. So I just put it out there. And and I found that completely mind-blowing that there, people are out there saying neg- negative, nasty things because they're just bored. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I told somebody the other day, this is kind of my rant, sorry <laughs> about this, but... No, please. I told somebody the other day, I said, they said to me, I think things have gotten worse. People are saying worse and worse things. I said, my theory is that I think people have always said bad things. It's just now they have the access to, for other people to hear it all the time. Right. right. I don't know that it's increased. I just think that the access has increased. So normally, if you had something I, bad, I would to, agree with that. right? If you had something yeah. bad to say, or so maybe you wrote it in a diary, or maybe you just told a couple friends that you knew, or blah blah blah. But you you didn't have the access to tell it to the world before. Right, and then you didn't have the you know feedback of ten thousand people immediately, yeah. right? You know, encouraging you that to do more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't, I think there's always been terrible things said in, throughout history and people spewing negativity and hate and awareness. They just, just didn't have the platform. These things have given people platforms and access to other human beings, multitudes of people to be able to say whatever you want without accountability for it. So their, be, their behavior right, because- is not accountable anymore. That's right, because it's a whole different ballgame when you are, are saying those things or doing those things again, and you're face yes. to face with somebody <laughs> versus hidden behind this anonymity. Well, how many times has somebody, I mean, I don't know, maybe they have, has somebody come up to you, your face, literally, nose to nose almost, and said, I hate you, I hope you die, or whatever it is. That's a pretty risky thing to go up to somebody you don't know and say that, because there's huge consequences exactly. to that potentially right. there's none online there's like zero <laughs> yeah right i mean right. it could affect you obviously mentally and stuff but there, there's no physical generally aspect of that initially i mean right exactly exactly so how do you deal with that yes. with like do you have people that come to you and they're dealing with social media behavior and the fallout from that um, so I, I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. Can you repeat that? Well, are you dealing, are you getting more people coming in who are saying like, Hey, I'm struggling because of social media behavior of people being negative to me, the bullying, uh, you oh, know, just gotcha. like the avalanche of, of a negative behavior. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's one of the predominant things that we've seen, especially, uh, with adolescents, mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons why I haven't been on social media, um, because of dealing with all of this, I think that again, when we're talking about adolescence, it's such a, uh, 
such a, an impressionistic period of their life and they are trying to figure themselves out. Um, and the peer group becomes more, uh, predominant in terms of having influence. And so when they are getting inundated with all of, and, and even if it's positive stuff, but certainly the negative stuff, again, it's a very false sense of who they are and who they know and what their value is. And so one of the things that we really take a look at, and not to mention the fact we have so many parents who just don't monitor any of right, this. Right. And so they're not even aware of what's going on. Um, and so what I have found to be very helpful is having heart-to-heart conversations with these adolescents and kind of helping them put into perspective what's going on and then helping them and, and many times along with their parents to kind of put up some safeguards um, around how they use social media um, because just sort of being out there for everybody uh, isn't safe for most people right. um, and especially for adolescents. And, you know, it was one of the things that I was pleasantly surprised about, like when I got onto Facebook and somebody was helping me set it up is that there are a lot of different privacy settings yeah. um, and way that you can control, you know, who's seeing what and, and who's responding to what. And I think that um, people really need to take advantage of that uh, because uh, to just put yourself out there, um, I think is extremely dangerous um, in this day and age. Most definitely. Totally agree. Well, Dr. Wolf, I've taken up a lot of your time. I tend to do this with everybody. I just, I'm fascinated by everybody <laughs> I talk to. I like to get to know them. And I feel there's people are so our collection of many stories and many activities and, and your line of work is particularly fascinating uh, to me. So thank you for sharing all that information. I think it'd be very helpful for people. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, uh, we will certainly be in contact in the future, but thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye.